This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. James Blair to tell us all about his recently published book from Cornell University Press titled Salvaging Empire, Sovereignty, Natural Resources and Environmental Science in the South Atlantic, which is a really interesting book. Honestly, this book does a lot of useful contributions to history to current policy on a number of fronts um, to help us understand how a bunch of things that might seem really different, like settler colonial colonies, like modern environmental science, like resource management and corporate identities of various places, actually, quite clearly in this book, all come together um, in the small bit of land that is contested still between the United Kingdom and Argentina that for the purposes of this interview, I will be calling the Falkland Islands because my English pronunciation is better than my Spanish. Um, I'm probably not going to talk more about this book because James, thank you so much for being here to give us your expert opinion about all of this. Thanks so much for having me. Before we dive into your fascinating book that examines self-determination, sovereignty, oceans, land, I mean, really all sorts of things. Would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining how you came to write this? Yeah, absolutely. Again, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm an associate professor in geography and anthropology at Cal Poly Pomona, and my work centers on energy, water, and environmental justice, especially related to extractive industries, including fossil fuels, mining, dams, logging, and fishing. And I'm generally an anthropologist, but I've got some training in human geography. So my work is rooted in cultural and environmental anthropology, as well as critical geography. And I use ethnographic, historical, and participatory methods to advance the fields of political ecology, science and technology studies, or STS, and settler colonial studies. And um, yeah, I, got, I became interested in the topic of this book on sovereignty and natural resources in, in the South Atlantic, um, because previously I had done field work in Argentina on a different topic, which was the role of cooperative factory movements in fair trade commodity chains, completely different topic. 
But I was there in 2012. And during that visit, I realized that, you know, this topic that I was researching was kind of already really saturated. And the case I planned to study didn't really have a lot of teeth as a book project. But that year, 2012, was also the 30th year anniversary of the war over the Falkland Islands, or in Spanish, in Argentina, they call it Las Malvinas, the Malvinas. And so there was graffiti that was promoting Argentina's popular sovereignty cause to recover the islands as part of its national territory, basically painted over every corner of Buenos Aires. So I, I started to, you know, it was it was impossible to ignore this. And I familiarized myself a bit with the scholarship on the Falklands or the Malvinas. And primarily, there's a lot written about that war in 1982. There's also, you know, a lot written on the geopolitics of the sovereignty dispute between Argentina and the United Kingdom. And I realized, you know, no one had really contributed a full ethnographic monograph based on fieldwork from within the islands. So I visited and I learned that, you know, in addition to its stunning wildlife, you know, penguins and albatrosses, the islands also had a booming fishing industry. The oil firms there had just recently discovered what they considered commercial amounts of offshore oil. And on top of that, the Falkland Islanders planned to hold a referendum the following year in 2013 that I was privileged to attend. And um, so they were voting on self-determination and they voted 99.8% in favor of remaining British with just three no votes among 1,517 valid votes. So, you know, I, I just became really fascinated with this bundle of contested claims over sovereignty, the environment, natural resources in the South Atlantic. And I ended up doing 20 months of ethnographic and historical field research in different locations. So most of my research was in the Falkland Islands, but also in Argentina and the UK. That is a lot of fieldwork. Um, and it makes sense having read the book, kind of where the insights come from, having undertaken that amount of it. Um, I think I'm going to go probably vaguely chronologically through the story that you tell us, though we'll see how much we stick to that uh, based on your answers. Um, but I'd love to start sort of early on. If we're thinking about sovereignty, if we're thinking about conceptions of identity, I was fascinated to read in the book that the Falkland Islands were seen by at least some to be, uh, the Falkland Islands, but also kind of the South Atlantic um, somewhat more generally, were seen to be a, quote, safe zone. What a what a phrase for imperial expansion, um, which if we're thinking about debates around empires, quite an interesting sort of concept to grapple with. Why was that kind of a conception for at least some people? And as you dug into it, to what extent do you agree with this? Yeah, great question. So, you know, there's archaeological research that now indicates that humans were present in the Falklands or the South Atlantic centuries before European colonization. But what struck me as really interesting as an anthropologist is that there's no historical evidence of an initial colonial encounter between European settlers and indigenous people in the islands upon the Europeans' arrival. So that sort of irregularity made the South Atlantic seem like a safe zone for imperial expansion, as you say. You know, in other words, they perceived it as being free from the risks of rebellions by indigenous or enslaved people that were more common in other colonial frontiers. Um, and, you know, I, I try to dispel that myth in some ways. You know, I, I don't agree with that conceptualization. And, and in the first chapter of my book, I describe how the settlement of the Falklands 
and the colonization of Patagonia became mutually constitutive in a lot of ways. You know, I show how the founding of the colony was marked by these uprisings of toiling laborers and indigenous peoples of South America who became linked to the islands through these interventions of commercial enterprises like you know, cattle herding, sealing, as well as evangelical missions. So, you know, just to give you a couple examples, um, there's a well-known example in 1833 of this uprising of a cattle herder. You know, cattle herders in, in South America and Argentina are known as gauchos, right? And so um, this uh, particular cattle herder, his name is Antonio El Gaucho Rivero. Um, you know, this was an uprising that happened, and it's often interpreted by supporters of Argentina's Malvinas claim as a rebellion against British rule. But, you know, the British had just colonized, um, you know, it, it, the year bef basically that year, um, earlier that year. And, you know, it's a long story leading up to that. But I try to provide some more context on the labor conditions, you know, debt peonage that actually extended from this short-lived colony that Buenos Aires had previously that may have led to this violent revolt. I also visit, you know, revisit the story of um, someone known as Orundelico. He's more commonly known as James or Jemmy Button. Um, and this is someone who was captured by Robert Fitzroy and transported to and from England with Charles Darwin on the journey of the Beagle. And I describe how a missionary settlement on the Falklands outer Keppel Island was used as a staging ground for colonizing Tierra del Fuego and Patagonia. And Yagan, they're called Yagan um, indigenous people, including Orundelico, were recruited for woodcutting in Tierra del Fuego. A lot of that wood ended up being the foundations of the initial settlements in, in some of the Falkland Islands. You know, they, they then, you know, forced them to go through religious instruction, gardening, and, and other kind of livestock raising at at that island, Keppel Island. So we can think of this similar to the residential boarding schools in North America and, and, the, and the, you know, tragic role in, that they played in colonization. And, you know, similar to these other situations, this resulted in things like fatal epidemics. But in 1859, there was also an act of resistance when a crew of missionaries were actually brought to their death after having accused some of these Yagan natives, um, who, by the way, had really just been compensated for their labor with biscuits and old rags. Um, but they accused them of stealing missing equipment. And, you know, it led to a disagreement and this uprising. So I argue that the South Atlantic, when we look at these uprisings, you know, it was really never a settler safe zone that was just free from the threat of violent insurrection against dispossession. And while there may not have been an initial, you know, encounter between colonizer and colonized in the Falklands, the area did become this enduring site of contestation and, I argue, a staging ground for imperial expansion. Hmm. Very helpful to help us debunk that myth. So thank you for starting us off there. Um, you mentioned gaucho culture, and I was fascinated to read that this is not purely something in history, that there are memories, that there are remnants of gaucho culture that are kept alive in the settler community today, despite the fact that it's something of a different settler community than the gauchos themselves. How and why, you know, what are these things that are being kept? How and why are they being maintained? Yes, I, this is something I found really fascinating. You know, the islands are peppered with these artifacts like corrals, 
that the Argentine government will cite as evidence of their prior occupancy and British usurpation of the islands. But I was really fascinated to find that, you know, rather than erasing and building over those kinds of cultural resources, I found that some Falkland Islanders who some who even vehemently, you know, support British sovereignty have become really obsessed with gaucho culture and preserving those corrals. Um, so sometimes, you know, in local museums and records, you do notice that the South American origins of the gauchos is downplayed. You know, they'll call them small in number or, you know, they'll say gaucho is just strictly a term to describe occupation as cattle herders. And they, so they try to distance it from the South American origins. But some islanders have attempted to salvage their history and incorporate these gauchos into their own narratives of enclosure and improvement of property on the landscape. So one example of this, besides the corrals, is local language ideology and speech acts that include what linguists call loan words that derive from Spanish, indigenous languages, and the historic gaucho culture. So just to give you an example of this, you know, Islanders um, who generally speak a very, you know, sort of British variant of English, um, they refer to each other as Che. You know, Che is, is, of course, the Patagonian term, you know, of affection that was immortalized through the nickname of the revolutionary from Argentina, Ernesto Che Guevara. And so they'll say things like, you know, I'll, I'll meet you on the other side of the Arosha, Che. And Arosha also, you know, comes from the Spanish Arroyo, and an Argentine accent would be Arrojo. Right, but they'll say arrocher, right? So it's an anglicization um, of arrojo and, and che that um, that I found really fascinating. And so because these Spanish terms and you know the different place names also derive a lot from gaucho heritage, these are terms that Falkland Islanders themselves employ. They're not always the same place names as what Argentina uses for Spanish translations. So you know it's it's tempting sometimes to interpret them as speaking against a strictly British national heritage, but uh, and and you know functionaries of the Argentine Foreign Ministry will do that. They'll they'll consider this kind of anglicization as an evidence of deliberate implantation, as they call it, of the population. But to Islanders that I met, you know, the survival of these syncretisms, these com combined words that, that mix gaucho heritage from Spanish and indigenous languages together with English, it's, it's all part of this really what they call a Falkland Islands way of life. Hmm. Which does complicate some of the assumptions made about what that looks like. Speaking of kind of on the ground realities um, and heritage, can you walk us through who qualifies for Falkland Island status, like the technical side of it, but then also kind of to what extent that maps on to what people think it means or sort of who is accepted, whether or not the technicality is there? Yeah. In the book's third chapter, it's called Imperial Diaspora. I describe these unstable aspects of class, race, ethnicity, and nation in these conceptualizations of the Falkland Islanders as a cohesive social unit. Um, again, because it's a disputed territory, their, their peoplehood is often in question. And, you know, it's changed a lot over time. And, you know, at first, the British colonial government treated the Falkland Islanders as settlers, um, you know, as representatives of the British, right? But later, they interacted with them more as colonial subjects, you know, and, and, and basically, they ultimately, the islanders were able to position themselves in this current, what I could describe as a kind of settler colonial protectorate. Now, they're, they're considered rightful British citizens. 
Um, you know, and, and, but at first, again, there was this kind of paradoxical colonial subjection um, of these white settlers. And so as a response to that, there was this conservative white working class movement for representation in government that took hold through the establishment of this Falkland, Falkland Islands Reform Club, later the Falklands Lobby. And Islanders started to identify with this new white ethnic community construct um, as Falkland Islanders. Another term that was used historically was kelpers. Um, Kelpers alludes to the abundant seaweed kelp that surrounds the archipelago. Um, Kelpers is not as used as much anymore, but, but, you know, as white settlers began to naturalize as kelpers or as native islanders, they protested farm managers who were importing alien migrant labor from South America. So they became nativist. They then lobbied British colonial administrators against any potential sovereignty deal with Argentina. And um, over time, these kind of scales of difference and allegiance have allowed these racial hierarchies of empire to endure even after the era of decolonization. So the local government have given these, what, I, what others like Ann Stoller describe as degrees of imperial sovereignty, um, they, they use specific point systems, right? So there's a point system, as you see in many different nations, right, where, uh, you know, people have to obtain certain number of points for permanent resident residence permits, right, PRP, they call it there. So, you know, this includes things like how much money is in your bank account, right? And so there's a growing effort in the islands, definitely, to celebrate um, liberal multiculturalism. And there's a variety of migrant populations now from places like St. Helena in the South Atlantic, um, Chile, the Philippines, Zimbabwe, that are definitely very much embraced locally and celebrated, um, in addition, of course, to British expats and military personnel. But without the necessary qualifications for that permanent residence, individuals lose the rights to own property, to build a career, um, to access health care. But even with, with a PRP, they cannot vote until they obtain this final degree of imperial sovereignty, which is Falkland Island status. And I want to just point out that, you know, even if you have Falkland Island status, it, you may not be considered a Falkland Islander because generally locally, Falkland Islander tends to require that one is locally born. Um, you can definitely get legal naturalization. You know, that's possible after seven years. And um, and what happens is, you know, there's they, they comport new arrivals to a certain kind of Falklands way of life that I observed. And, you know, there are local values like safety and work ethic that have come to define belonging and propriety in the islands. I always find it really fascinating when sort of categories don't match up, categories on paper don't match up with what people's categories are in their heads. Um, so thank you for explaining kind of that mismatch in this instance. Um, turning perhaps slightly away from asking you about the sovereignty bit of the title. Um, I'm wondering if we can talk about the first word, salvaging, um, which is a great way to start a book title, catches the attention. Um, you talk about two parts of uh, what Falkland Islanders are doing in the waters around these islands. One historical, salvaging from shipwrecks, and one current and future, um, extracting, drilling for oil. How might we actually see these as being more linked than we think if we think through this lens of salvaging? Yes, thank you so much for picking up on that. You know, Atlantic historians, um, historians of the Atlantic world, have examined how shipwreck salvage, um, 
you know, historically was an extractive economy in its own right. And, you know, this is very much the case in the South Atlantic. The Falkland Islanders seize the opportunity to swindle wrecked vessels struggling to journey past Cape Horn as they took refuge in the islands for provisions or ship repair. And this became a strategic enterprise for gaining profit. So islanders developed a thriving business out of seizing and beaching shipwrecks, auctioning off their cargo, repairing them, and reusing them as hulks for storage. Um, the Falklands development as an extractive frontier for marine resources, besides what it's also well known for, you know, sheep and agriculture. But when we're talking about, you know, all these different extractive marine resources from sealing and whaling to squid fishing and oil exploration, you know, it's all built on salvaging the value of shipwrecks and extorting captains of damaged ships. Um, so in part two of my book, I connect the intensification of marine resource exploitation, especially both commercial fishing and especially oil exploration, to these successive modes of opportunistic wealth extraction in the South Atlantic. And while salvaging wrecks may, you know, was an industry based on, you could understand it as dispossessing other people's catastrophes, you know, embracing an economic future that's based on production and exchange of oil and other marine resources like fishing, you know, it's placed islanders at the mercy of speculative investors. And there's this unstable commodity market that demands complicity in a shared kind of future form of wreckage. And that's the wreckage of global climate change and mass extinction. Mm. Very it, it's impressive how those things are actually so clearly linked together in that way, um, given that we might not think of them together. And they're certainly often part of different types of histories and books. Similarly, um, you link kind of two other words from the title together. And I'm going to ask you about that in the next question of natural resources and sovereignty. Um, I was somewhat surprised to find in the book a discussion about um, kind of corporate personhood, I suppose, and global commodity markets in a book about the Falkland Islands. Um, and yet there seems to be a real drive uh, amongst the settlers in the islands to craft personhood through social, so through some sort of kind of incorporation as a group in the global commodity markets. Um, can you tell us about this and sort of what implications you think this has in terms of identity and sovereignty? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a common misconception that a place that's a remote archipelago is necessarily, you know, an isolated place. And during my fieldwork, you know, the Falklands ideal of climbing social ranks through autonomous personhood, it was perceived as being under threat by, you know, the potential catastrophe of mismanaging all this potential resource wealth there. You know, the, the resource curse, um, some people, political scientists or economists, uh, we'll use this label for a set of dynamics that, you know, may be associated with high dependence on natural resource rents. And locally, Falkland Islanders were referring to that. You know, they were preparing for offshore oil. They had already become, you know, really, in some cases, wealthy license brokers for commercial fishing. A lot of squid is produced there. Um, but, you know, in the book, I describe these kind of tensions between, you know, this new fiscal regime that was forming for oil and a growing international network of technical, financial and diplomatic oil trustees that are interested in developing um, what was that commercially, you know, what was considered to be commercial, which was the sea lion well um, in the North Falkland Basin. And so, you know, during this time, Argentina, of course, considers this oil exploration illegal. 
um, you know, and despite mounting pressure from Argentina, there were these plans developing for offshore oil. And, you know, locally, it instilled a sense of importance among islanders and their and their licensees in some ways. So the islanders and their government started to engage in a lot of oil diplomacy. You know, they, they try to learn what other countries like Norway or Uruguay or Brazil or Trinidad and Tobago, how they were how they were engaging with this, you know, global trade of commodities. Um, and my observations of visits from U.S. and British oil partners show how these attempts to salvage this settler autonomy and personhood, um, how that also got partially eclipsed or combined with this new charismatic face of corporate personhood. You know, with oil, you know, the promise of the U.S. dollar had arrived. And, you know, some islanders saw this corporate personhood of U.S. oil companies strategically as a potential kind of panacea for both the peril of the potential resource curse and this problem of contested peoplehood in the sovereignty dispute with Argentina. So this kind of settler colonial protectorate seemed to be, in other words, acquiring new local meaning as a potential oil producer. And some islanders that I met even viewed resource wealth as a way to what they would describe as buying continued protection from the Royal Air Force, which already has a base there. But this way, they'd be demonstrating economic self-sufficiency. And, you know, British administrators may hesitate to link oil with independence. Of course, you know, there's a lot of doubts over the saga, what's happened with Scotland. Um, but, you know, local residents have envisioned possibilities, not only for self-government, but also for reimbursing the UK for the cost of defense. In other words, continuing to be part of a British overseas territory, but doing so in a way that is, you know, truly self-sufficient through this export economy. So, Given that we're talking about kind of what is the relationship between the islands and Britain and some of the tensions um, and sort of questions to be sorted out around that, could you tell us a bit about the idea that you talk about in the book that these islands are in a perpetual frontier and that these capitalist projects, these extractive projects might further keep them in that sort of place? Yeah, even though the Falkland Islanders, you know, are adamant, like I describe, about their rights to exploit resources and continue residing in the islands, and you know, as a as a British people, um, the manner in which they establish their dominion as a people, when you when you look at just the infrastructure on the landscape, it, it seems kind of transient. It's really remarkable how, you know, I, I found residents would would prop up what they call, you know, kit everything, you know, kit schools, kit churches. All these things coming out of containers, you know, porta cabins threaten to outnumber houses in a lot of ways. And, you know, I noticed that the, the vast roads network outside of the only town of Stanley is unpaved. So, you know, all these rural dwellings are still referred to, you know, they're still referred to as settlements. So there's a sense of kind of chronic temporariness of infrastructure. And, you know, it may be questioned whether this is a colonial leftover or if it's something that's inherent also to extractive industries. And so I, I argue that the chronic temporariness of infrastructure in the Falklands, it, it both, you know, it engages future uses for oil, um, but it also suspends the island's frontier condition in this sort of liminal stage of settler colonial nostalgia as a disputed territory. So, you know, exa for example, you know, I, I observe that 
the petro-capitalist infrastructure projects there, they perpetuate this frontier condition of a sort of temporal instability. In, and, and I think this may be something that could be generalizable to other sort of disputed imperial formations like the Falklands. But I paid particular attention to the construction of this, you know, this temporary dock. Um, this temporary dock or barge that is aptly called the Noble Frontier. Noble Energy was one of the oil companies, and they brought this dock, Noble Frontier, that was designed to support the proposed development of the Sea Lion oil field. And so I tracked how that dock's temporary nature, how it sort of foreclosed the possibilities of asserting settler colonial authority through what a lot of islanders would have preferred instead of that dock which would have been a permanent deep water port. They wanted permanent infrastructure, not chronically temporary infrastructure. And so, you know, ultimately though, you know, this noble frontier came, it was temporary, but you know, the, the permanent port hasn't come yet. I know there's plans still for it, but this has required the Islanders to retrofit the noble frontier for extended use. So it again became this another, you know, chronically temporary form of infrastructure. I also provide, you know, a closer look at local debates over these constantly shifting plans for proposed oil rig infrastructures. And despite all this detailed planning and all this installation of these modular infrastructures, um, you know, the oil frontier has not been developed in the, in the South Atlantic. And even that has been held in suspension. And that's due to several different factors, you know, a, a global glutton supply for oil, um, climate change policy, and much more. I think that example of retrofitting a temporary port kind of says so much <laughs> yeah, and makes some really kind of, it, it gives a lot of weight to kind of what, what the stakes are, um, I think, for people grappling with this. I suppose zooming out just a little bit, um, you talk in the book about how Falkland Islanders are using environmental management, including but not just the oil extracting bit as part of the creation of kind of a particular identity. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, this is definitely a, a key part of my book. Um, you know, in addition to the lack of infrastructure, uh, the, the South Atlantic is also described as having a dearth of scientific data and it's described as being also a frontier of knowledge. Um, you know, to give a little bit of background here, when I was doing my fieldwork in 2014, the Argentine government invented a new way of imagining the South Atlantic as what they called the Pampa Azul, or the Blue Pampa. The Pampa, for those who may not be familiar, is the name of this vast breadbasket of the so-called interior of Argentina, the cattle frontier and agricultural legacy upon which the Argentine nation was built through violent dispossession of indigenous peoples. And, you know, by, by reconfiguring the Atlantic Ocean as the Pampa Azul, the Argentine state has strategically asserted the country's sovereignty claim over maritime territory through this oceanic socio-technical imaginary. And so, you know, in, 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 the, in the Falklands, in the islands, I noticed that there was a contending kind of socio-technical imaginary, and it was more island-based. It was more archipelagic. Um, scientific research and environmental conservation initiatives have also intensified in the islands, especially since the emergence of commercial fishing and oil exploration. And, you know, Falklands-based scientists and conservationists try to reinforce control over territory and natural resources in a kind of framing of good, go good environmental governance. Um, so, you know, there's a, a couple different groups there. One of them, the South Atlantic Environmental Research Institute, or SARI, 
um, it serves as this kind of archipelagic counterpoint to the Pampa Azul and its oceanic perspective. And Sari also was, was really, you know, just getting started conveniently um, timed with my own multi-phase research in the Falklands. So I was, I was able to take part in their field work to tag penguins with locational trackers, try to understand how these penguins foraging patterns interact with the oil drilling. Um, so I analyzed that in a lot of detail in the book. And I noticed also how, you know, to showcase their role as environmental steward, uh, stewards in the South Atlantic, these researchers would participate in the, in the Falkland Islands government's diplomacy trips. So they tried to brand the Institute as having this island to island scope, you know, ranging from the tropics to the ice with research in all these different South Atlantic territories like Ascension Island or St. Helena, but all the way to Antarctica and spanning up, you know, toward the Caribbean as well. And so I examine, you know, this archipelagic socio-technical imaginary and describe how, among many other things, Sari became an instrument for propelling the Falklands emergent offshore oil industry through consultancy work. Now, during my, my fieldwork, I also participated in collaborative projects with, um, you know, Falklands Conservation. That's a nonprofit affiliate of BirdLife International. And so these organizations like SARI and Falklands Conservation, they primarily employ experts that are on temporary contracts from the UK, from Europe, or from, you know, the British Commonwealth. But their particular kind of Western environmental conservationist values have also enhanced local assertions of Falkland Islanders in the way that they articulate their right to self-determination and their nativeness. And so I, I realized that Environmental stewardship was a way that the Falkland Islanders could assert what I call settler indigeneity, this kind of paradoxical identity formation. And in the final chapter of the book, you know, I examine how the settlers of the Falklands have tried to reinvent themselves as natives through environmental management. I examine a series of these human and non-human interactions. I build on multi-species anthropology, and I consider how the course of you know, biosecurity and species eradication changed over time in the islands. At first, you know, the early settlers had started off with extermination of what they called native pests. And this included, you know, geese in the Falklands, but it also included, you know, indigenous people that were that were dehumanized and considered as native pests in Patagonia and in Tierra del Fuego. That changed over time. And, you know, the islanders started to, you know, not just eliminate native pests, but also defend the islands as, as, as natives themselves against alien invasion or non-native species. And this included a lot of plants and animals from South America. You know, and toward a conclusion, I analyze how the islanders have now begun to even uproot their own ecological imperialist past and colonize with native species through the removal of British introduced invasive species as well as habitat restoration methods that are designed to you know, protect those globally important birds and reintroduce endemic plants. Yeah, can you tell us about that last bit? Um, to what extent would you consider this to be decolonizing the physical landscape? Yeah, um, the, the removal of these British introduced native species like you know, Scottish thistle or you know, habitat restoration for native plants like tussock grass it made me question, you know, what constitutes an indigenous or settler ecological landscape and how have 
the islanders not only salvaged the British Empire, but also naturalized their own colonial heritage as stewards of the land with authority over the environment. And so I describe how conservationists in the islands are trying to what they describe as colonize with native species to restore soil. So the, they use this native seed hub to plant native species in places that I found really remarkable. For example, you know, cleared minefields, um, you know, actual landmines, right, had been there from the 1982 war. And these clear minefields that have been demined now in some ways are perfect because they've had time to replenish because they've been fenced off for decades since 1982 war. Um, so, you know, locals are hopeful that replacing landmines with native seeds will support indigenous microorganisms in the soil. And by making their post-war env environment more native, the islanders and their British trustees, they seek to cultivate an image of themselves as responsible stewards. So, you know, I describe how by colonizing with native species, settlers have sought to assert indigeneity and salvage empire. Hmm. In a lot of ways, I think kind of that example speaks to so many, you know, brings together so many of the themes of the book um, quite neatly and makes it clear kind of how tricky this is, right? Is it decolonizing to replace existing ecosystems with ones that were taken out before, but you're doing it by fours, like it's like, ooh, hmm, okay, interesting. Um, so I guess thinking about that and all of the examples you very helpfully given us, if we zoom sort of all the way out, to to what extent might we think of settler indig indigeneity as an event rather than a structure? Yeah, and, and I don't want to give the impression, you know, that I'm hyperbolic or exaggerating, you know, the extent to which, uh, you know, this is decolonization on the same level as other, you know, sovereign, indigenous sovereignty, right, uh, claims. And so, yeah, I wanted to clarify, you know, scholars have conceptualized settler colonialism as a structure, not an event. And, you know, people like Patrick Wolf, for, for example, they describe how it's this complex social formation governing the seizure of land. Um, you know, usually by means of exclusion or elimination, and that lasts through time because it's a structure, but it's also restructured by indigenous refusal, as, you know, indigenous scholars like um, Audra Simpson have shown. Um, most frontier zones like the South Atlantic, where, you know, there's limits on authority, most of them have been conquered or narrowed in some way. But, you know, the, the settler peoplehood in a British overseas territory like the Falklands without a historical encounter between colonizers and a pre-colonial indigenous population in the islands, it can be thought of as a different sort of dynamic relation. So I tried to understand that. Um, and, you know, we described earlier this perpetual frontier. The perpetual frontier is not necessarily a past occurrence. It's not necessarily a rigid structure or a linear process, right? I describe it as the suspended state of colonial nostalgia that makes imperial power present in a new kind of constellation. So the Falkland Islanders, they've conjured past colonial utopias. They have heritage practices. They have speech habits, naming practices, and all the rest of it. But, you know, the preparations for oil have now positioned the islanders in this new global network of corporations, consultants, and experts. And that reconfiguration of the frontier, it brings complementary kinds of aspirations, but also incompatible aims to the islanders' long-term wishes and interests. So, 
in this context, if settler colonialism is a structure, not an event, then I argue that settler indigeneity may be understood as an event rather than a structure, right? And the current layering of an oil frontier on a disputed imperial territory not only builds foundations for new forms of corporate personhood that we've talked about, but it also has the doubling effect of you know, keeping this seemingly closed structure of the settler colony open. And so you know, these temporary infrastructure investments, changing engineering designs, checkbox environmental impact assessments that I describe in the book, all these things may be common for companies staking out acreage on different kinds of resource frontiers. But in this context, the prospects of new economic booms in the South Atlantic they also heighten a geopolitical division, and they remind us that the settler colonial protectorate's task of salvaging empire is never really complete. That's a brilliant summary, I think, in conclusion of um, what the book is doing. And I very much echo um, your mention of the detail in the book. For anyone listening to this who wants to know more about what this looks like on the ground, um, the book really does go into some more fabulous examples of it. Um, I really... I'm, I'm no, of course. Um, I really only have one final question though before I let you go. Um, we've pretty much finished talking about the book, at least for now. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, since completing my research in the South Atlantic, you know, I, I've, I've started to do more community-based, collaborative research and advocacy. Um, and that research has focused more on water and energy um, and mainly analyzed the social and ecological impacts of what I and other scholars call green extractivism. Um, and I've done that through policy-oriented fieldwork that's been located also in South America, drawing, you know, building on my work in that, in that region of the South Atlantic and South America and Patagonia, but also in Canada and in California. So, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of collaborating with indigenous peoples, fence line communities, biodiversity conservation scientists, and environmental activists to conduct research and protect rivers, watersheds, and wetlands from an array of different extractive industries. Um, you know, specifically in, in collaboration with uh, coalitions that have been organized by, you know, groups like Chile's Free Flowing Rivers Network or, you know, the Cree First Nation of Waswanapi um, or, you know, Comité Cívico del Valle here in Imperial Valley, California. My research has sought to raise awareness for more sustainable, equitable um, and just approaches to proposed large hydroelectric dams, industrial logging and mining projects. Um, so it all builds on my previous research on you know, fossil fuels and oil in this book, um, but going into different extractive industries and especially the role of mining in the energy transition. So recently I've been especially focused on issues associated with lithium mining Lithium, as you may know, is a key component of lithium-ion batteries. So, you know, have been framed as fundamental for electrified transportation and the energy transition away from fossil fuels. And so, I've had have the opportunity to analyze, you know, different kinds of conflicts over um, lithium mining that have to do with water availability and indigenous rights in, you know, the Atacama Desert, for example, in Chile, um, this borderlands area of, of the Puna de Atacama in Chile, Argentina, and Bolivia. And, you know, more recently, I've been working closely with, I mentioned Comité Cívico del Valle, it's an environmental justice organization, um, together with their Lithium Valley Community Coalition in Imperial Valley, California, 
we've been advocating for just and equitable community benefits from geothermal lithium development that's been proposed near the, this place called the Salton Sea. It's kind of a whole nother can of worms, but it's another layered and complex place full of interesting contradictions like the Falklands. And that's what I'm really attracted to is all these interesting paradoxes. So this case study of the Salton Sea that I've been you know, analyzing and geothermal lithium development there, that contributes to a broader cross-institutional research project that I'm very delighted to be a part of on hydrosocial dynamics and environmental justice impacts in water energy transitions and you know the life cycle of energy storage more generally and so so we're fortunate to be funded by grants from the NSF the National Science Foundation the EPA the Environmental Protection Agency um, in addition to these local partnerships that I've got. So ultimately, I'm, I'm interested in you know, reflecting on the social and ecological contradictions that are inherent to you know, clean energy transitions and green extractivism in another book project as well. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. We'll have to have you back um, when that becomes your next book. But of course, while you are working on all of those things, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Salvaging Empire, Sovereignty, Natural Resources and Environmental Science in the South Atlantic, published by Cornell University Press. James, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Melcher. It's been a real pleasure.